Let's pray. Father, you are a good, loving, gracious God. And we praise you for all of your abundant goodness to us this morning. Lord, some of that goodness is clouded by suffering at this point in time. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would help each one of us here this morning, those who are suffering, those who are coming out of suffering, those who are going into suffering, Lord, everyone in our body to see with renewed clarity the vision of your church, the vision of every individual saint that makes up this precious church, Calvary Bible Church. Lord, our request is that you would help us. Lord, we know that the unfolding of your word gives light. And so our prayer is that as we look at this text, we pray that you would cause your light to shine in our hearts and help us, help us to be faithful, to do what you call your people to. Night is coming when no man can work. We have one life to win, reward for heaven. So Lord, let us not loiter or linger here or waste our time, but Father, help us all to press on and be the kind of servants you want us to be. Help us to see this from this text and be changed as a result. And Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I was told this morning that uh, today is Transition Sunday for our children's ministry. And I thought, wow, what kind of providence uh, that is. Uh, but it is a delight to be here. And as you turn to 1 Corinthians 3, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for, really, for your graciousness to me and my family. Uh, This has been quite a transition for all of us. We, especially, as our family, we feel so much love from you guys. And we have felt it, honestly, from the day we came to Calvary, but we've especially felt it the past month, month and a half, this week, Today, I've received so many text messages, phone calls, emails. I am so grateful for those. Uh, Honestly, it would be almost irresponsible for me to respond to all of them. Uh, I I don't know how one person would have the time. Uh, But I'm just so grateful for your love, your encouragement to me. Thank you for your kindness to my family. Uh, You have just been a gem, a treasure, a gift to us. And we, we are so grateful. We, we are so blessed. I am blessed to be your pastor. Right? And that is a rare thing. I am so blessed, so blessed, so grateful to be here with you. And as I thought about what we need to hear as a church this morning, uh, my thoughts ran immediately, immediately to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you're saying, well, you said Corinthians. Well, hold on. Uh, my thoughts ran to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord, Jesus, that, listen closely, as you received from us how you ought to walk. For 28 years you were instructed uh, how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. 
The NASB says that you excel still more. You excel still more. That's really it for me. I, I look at you and I love you and I think, wow, let's just keep being faithful. Let's keep doing what we know God has called us to do. We are a church that is immensely blessed, and you know it. We all know it. So my thought is, how do we continue? How do we continue to be faithful in the midst of change? How do we press on to excel still more as a church? Well, that led me to look at, the example, at an example of a church that utterly failed to do that. A church that had the gospel, had received how they ought to walk, and then totally failed to do it. It was a tragedy. It was a church that had great teachers, great pastors, yet drifted into discord and division and brought shame, really, onto the name of Christ. That's the church in Corinth. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a more privileged and pitiful uh, church than the church in Corinth. You know the stories about the church. Um, Paul had taken the gospel to them. Uh, They had received the truth. They had walked in the truth. They knew the truth. They walked out the truth for a little while. And somewhere along the way, they lost sight of what was most important for God's church. Now, it should be said, the church is made up of individuals, right? So when I speak of the church, you should hear me speaking to you as an individual. And these Corinthian, the church in Corinth, as individuals, they had lost sight of what was most important. And so they begin to fight with one another. They're filled with jealousy towards one another. And they begin to divide up in little factions. And they were full of rivalry, selfish ambition, All the things you dread a church to become. Somehow they had turned Christian living into a competitive sport. And their their competitors were not outside the walls of the church, but they were the ones behind them in the pew or in front of them in the pew or beside them in the pew or in the pulpit or leading music or, you know, whatever. Uh, And they divided themselves up into teams. It was pitiful. It's pitiful. They all individually wanted to be lords and masters over their fellow church members. They didn't want to be servants. Generally speaking, you could categorize the church in Corinth as flat out worldly. Just a worldly church. And and, and they were the opposite of what you would want in a congregation. Yet, what is so striking, and you know this, what does Paul call them in chapter 1, verse 2? What does he call them? Saints. He doesn't just call them saints, though. It wasn't like this passing word, okay, I'll call you saints because I know that's theologically accurate, and then I'll get on to the next thing. But he sort of belabors it. He says, if we flip back to 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the church that belongs to God. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Right? He just kind of belabors it. What he's trying to do is remind them 
of who they really are. They're functioning as if they are not saints. And Paul will say they're functioning essentially as pagans in the church. Well, they, the situation in Corinth became so bad that it became necessary for Paul to write to this proud church and correct their errors and really to remind them of the things, the fundamental things that they had forgotten along the way. And he corrected them and his target was actually to bring them back to faithfulness because they had drifted. So how do you bring a church back to faithfulness when it has drifted? Well, you follow Paul's example. Well, my desire (laughs) is that we won't have to do any of that, right? Let's just stay faithful, let's keep the course, let's press on, and let's learn from Paul in this passage about what we ought to do to keep the course, to stay faithful. And what he does here is he gives us really three reminders of what it means to be a servant. You, friend, are a servant of the Lord, right? You're a servant of the Lord, and Paul reminds this church uh, of what they need to know about serving God if they are going to be faithful. For them, if they're going to regain faithfulness. For us, if we're going to hold on to faithfulness and keep excelling. Three things. First, remember the servant's role. That's verses 5 to 7. Second, remember the servant's work. Verses 8 to 10. Third, remember the servant's exam. Verses 11 to 15. Your faithfulness. Let me just express this to you as clearly as I can. Your faithfulness as a servant of Christ. You as an individual. Your individual faithfulness as Jesus' servant at Calvary Bible Church hinges on you remembering carefully these three truths. And our unity as a church, our flourishing as a church hinges on each of us remembering who we are as servants of the living God. So my desire is to remind you of these things this morning, not because you've forgotten them, but because, like Peter said, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and have been instructed in them. We all need this message today. So let's stand and hear from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We, for, rather, for, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it, the foundation, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You can be seated. It's a sobering passage. Sobering passage, but in it, Paul lays out for us three truths to remember to help you be a faithful servant. And that's my desire for you this morning. And it's my desire for myself. All right, so this is a little bit of self-interest here. (laughs) I want to be a faithful servant, and you want to be a faithful servant. That's our charge before the living God. So how do we do it? Well, the first thing that Paul says we need to do is remember our role as servants. Remember the servant's role. Now, the issue that Paul was addressing here really goes back to a report that he had received Uh, about the state of the church in Corinth. It was a concerning report. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, you can see uh, the report. He writes, For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, significant people, credible report, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. Let me be very specific about the quarrel that they mentioned. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. That's the quarrel. That's the faction. And and really, this is rivalry. This is rivalry within the church. It's the sort of thing, the, the exact thing that Jesus came to deliver us from. All right, Philippians 2, 3 to 4 says this, Do nothing from selfishness. Or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Alright, when you are rivalrous, competitive with a fellow church member, uh, you are not looking out for their own interests. Right? You're looking out for your own advancement, your own improvement. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And who's the great example of this, Paul? Philippians 2, 3-4. Well, Jesus Christ, right? Of all people, we heard last week, the exalted Christ, of all people who could have claimed superiority over their neighbor, it was our Lord. But what did He do? He had a right to superiority. He laid it down and He served. And, And Paul is is really here in this text, he's calling people to model Christ's likeness, and as Dan preached to us last week, to wonder and marvel that Jesus would do such a thing. And then he calls us all to throw that off and exalt ourselves? No, 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 no. To follow behind him and do what he did. However, the folks in Corinth have not done that. Their desire was to be on top of, of one another, right? They wanted whatever happened, whatever conversation was unfolding in Corinth, uh, 
these little parties wanted to be on top, right? They wanted to be the winners. They wanted everyone to know that they were the master and not the servant. They were viewing their lives and one another as a competition. And because they were doing that, it naturally spilt over into viewing leaders that way. Right? Paul's not directly addressing a leadership problem. Right? Who, who is, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, he says, verse 12 rather, I'm of Paul, Apollo, Cephas of Christ. Uh, which one of these leaders had, had messed up? Which one of these leaders had sort of cultivated a faction? Well, I don't think any of them had. Right? Definitely wasn't Jesus. Um, it, the problem lay in the church, the people. Right? And when these leaders hear that there are factions developing around them, uh, they were appalled. And so the apostle has to direct his attention to really to, to set things straight. The rivalry that was marking and characterizing this church had, had developed into a war within the body. Can you imagine living that way? Some of you have experienced that in a church. It's no way uh, to bring God honor. And although the leaders were unaware, as soon as Paul heard about this, he, he sets to, out to set the record straight. You guys are misunderstanding the way that all of this works. You have forgotten the basics. So let me, let me refresh you, he says. And so it, it really, though, if you go back to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he, he identifies the problem in the first four verses of the chapter as an issue of immaturity. Of course, there are factions, but the root of it is their own immaturity. They were living like spiritual infants. Right? So they were acting like toddlers in the nursery, fighting over toys. All right? Spiritual infancy. And friends, there is nothing more deadly to a church than spiritual, maybe I'll say rampant spiritual infancy. Right? And we see that in Corinth. At this point in the Corinthian church, at this point in their walk, they should have been faithful. They should have been men and women and godly examples. Yet they had failed to grow and Paul addresses the issue, and essentially, if they don't repent, they prove themselves to be unbelievers. But Paul is hopeful, so he speaks into the situation. And it's amazing. What he does is, is not to say, stop fighting, stop bickering, get along with one another, hold hands. Uh, what he does is he says, remember the role of a servant. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? It's striking, even in Paul's mind, he puts Apollos first, grammatically, than himself. It's amazing. He's always modeling. In chapter 5, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, what then is Apollos? Not who, but what? What are we? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. What are we? You're bickering about us. You're fighting over us. Uh, let me just ask you a, a rhetorical question. What are we? <laughs> we are servants, he says. Merely servants. Who fights over their waitress at a restaurant? Who fights over who's the better waiter or waitress? We are merely diakonos is the word. You know the word. It's the word for 
waiting tables. It's the word for servant. It simply means to render a service for a superior. It was used of table servants. It's used of anyone who gets something done for someone else. Paul and Apollos and the other leaders merely were servants. They, all they did was go, to get their objective, that's a tongue twister, was to get things done for someone else. And the someone else was the Lord Jesus. And friends, that is the objective of every Christian. Your entire life is about getting something done for someone else. And the person for whom we work is the Lord Jesus. It's amazing. Paul extends the label of a servant in Ephesians 4 to the church. Ephesians 4, chapter 11. If you want to flip over there, we read it in the opening. It was our scripture reading. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are gifts to the church. Okay, what's their purpose? Verse 12, for, I want you all to see that. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or the work of ministry, ESV. The word is diakonias, which is the same form of the word, a form of the word diakonos. It's just a deacon. It's just a servant. He's not talking about the, the, class, or the office of deacon. He's talking about the general responsibility of every individual Christian. They are servants. Pastors, teachers, equip the saints to do the work of a servant. That's our job. That's what Russ's job was this morning. That's what my job is this morning. That's what Dan's job was for 28 years. To equip the saints. That's you dear, precious people that we love, that the Lord loves far more to equip you to be faithful servants, to do the work that God has called you to do. That's our job, and your job is to do that work. Every Christian is a servant of Jesus. Do you know that? Here's a more, maybe a more, pointed question. Do you live like that? Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus? I would just encourage you, think about your relationships. Are you a servant in these relationships? Are you viewing these relationships that you have as a theater or a stage for you to serve? Or are you using these as a platform for your own glory? What are you doing? Are you serving those around you or are you exalting yourself above them? Right? What, what are you doing? Are you functioning as the Lord's servant? Well, let me give you a little more clarity. Uh, it's easy to say, yes, I'm functioning as a servant or um, let me just put it this way. The question is really this. What is the servant's role? That's the question. If you believe you are a servant, and the question becomes, okay, what is my role? What's my responsibility? What would God have me to do? And I want you to look at verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5 again of 1 Corinthians. 
And just notice the rest of verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, he says, through whom you believed. Servants through whom. Through whom you believed. We were, Paul says, simply the means through which God worked in your life, Corinthian church. We were just the channel. We were just the vehicle. Paul was the voice to bring about saving faith in the life of these pagans in Corinth. And that was it. He was the channel, the pipe, the agent through which God worked. God spoke through him. God used him to carry out his purpose. Paul did not cause faith to come to the Corinthians. The Corinthians did not need Paul, right? Paul was merely the vehicle, the agent, the instrument. Look at verse 6. Paul is crystal clear. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. I did this, Apollos did this, but God gave the growth. God was the one who gave faith. He was the one who did the supernatural work. right? He was the one who made the dish and the server just brought it to the, the, the table. right? You don't celebrate the waiter. Right? You celebrate the chef. Right? And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, we were just, we were merely planting a seed. Don't celebrate us. Celebrate God who caused faith to be birthed supernaturally in your dead heart. Praise Him. He is worthy to be praised. And actually, that's the, exactly what we see as we move on. Uh, if you look at <clears throat> verse 7, he says, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God causes the growth. Right? This is all about God. The word so in verse 7, I think that's maybe the way it's in the ESV as well. So is, is a pretty significant word, very significant word. Right? It's, a, it's a conjunction that points back to verse 6. That identifies the consequence or the outcome of God's work described in verse 6. All right, What was God's work described in verse 6? He gives growth. All right, what's the result? What's the outcome of God being the one who does all the work? Verse 7. God causes the growth, therefore, the one who plants, nor the one who sow, or waters, is anything. But God who causes the growth. Now, it's a choppy sentence in Greek, it's a choppy sentence in English. Let me give you a sort of, uh, hopefully, a, a little bit of a clearer statement here about this verse. It, it, it's, it should read like this. God caused the growth, verse 6, and so, as a result, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God, the one who causes growth, is everything. All right? Because God causes growth, it's all about Him. That's verse 7. And that is the point of serving the King. We 
operate merely as instruments in His hand to bring Him glory. And the wonder of wonders, friends, is that the sovereign God who could change hearts in a moment has designed it such that you and I get to be the instruments through which miraculous, supernatural things happen in the lives of other people. We are simply, merely the conduit of God's gracious work. It reminds me really of 2 Corinthians 5.20, where Paul says this, We are, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Him. God making His appeal through us. God makes His appeal through us. God speaks through us. We are His representatives. We're His servants. It is all about Him. Therefore, I mean, the axe doesn't boast over the person who wields it. You are an axe, all right? You're an axe in God's hand. Be used by Him and just be quiet, right? It's not about you, right? It's not about me. It's all about the one who gives the growth. Now, what happens in churches is we lose sight of that. We forget that we are all merely servants. And when we forget our role, we start to exalt ourselves, right? And, and, And we're no longer merely instruments, right? We want some sort of authority. We want some sort of, uh, we want to win. We want to come out on top. But friends, that, that behavior earns God's opposition. When you, who are meant to be simply a pipe, simply a channel for God, and you start making it all about you, about how wonderful a channel, and wonderful a PVC pipe you are, um, God has a way of stopping that pipe up, right? And you become dry, fruitless, all because God loves you so dearly. <laughs> uh, he loves you too much to let you forget that it's all about Him, right? Sometimes that happens when churches go into crisis, right? Pray that the Lord would preserve His people and His church. Sometimes that happens in our lives, when we feel so dry and things are just not working, what is it? What is going on? We have all these trials, difficulties. Well, God has a way of reminding us of our mere manhood, our creatureliness, that we need Him for everything. All right? And that is the role of a servant. So how can we be a faithful church? How can you be a faithful servant? Well, remember your role. Remember that you, you, I'm not talking about your neighbor, right? you function every day of your life as a servant of God. And this morning, you are functioning as a servant at Calvary Bible Church. Well, you say, well, I came here to receive. I, you know, I came here to hear a sermon and hear a Sunday school lesson. Well, you came really for the wrong reason, right? You came... You should come here to worship God and give to Him the honor and glory He deserves. And we gather to worship. We do gather to be edified. But our primary focus ought not to be what can I get, but what can I give. Right? That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And friends, I just want to say, that's the kind of church I am a part of. And I praise God for that. But we need to excel still more. 
All right? We cannot settle. We can't say, well, we've done it right for so long. No, we need to remember our role. We need to remember we dare not live in such a way as to try to come out on top, but we want to come under one another in service and care. If we continue to do this, we will be faithful servants and we'll be a faithful church. But Paul doesn't just remind us of the servant's role. He reminds us of the servant's work. It's in verse 8. Servant's role is a channel. The servant's work is multifaceted. (laughs) It's really five things at least that Paul lists in verses 8 to 10. Now, you could probably come up with more of them. This is kind of an overview sermon, so you're probably going to be saying, oh, he missed this, he missed this. That's okay. I can't cover it all. Um, I do want to try to be done at a decent time, though. So um, what Paul does here in overview is he gives really five features of the servant's work. The servant's work. What is it like? Our role is to be a channel? Okay, well, what is our work like, Paul? What, how do we function as servants? We need to remember... Our work, five things. Here's the first one. Verse 8, servants work collectively. Servants work collectively, or as a group. We are one. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. They're united. Servants are not in competition with one another. They work together. They're in the same class, right? They're both instruments in the master's hand. One plants, he says, one waters, but they are united in all their work. Now, what is God's favorite metaphor of this unity of the servant's work? It's really the body. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 12, we see this. This becomes the the great metaphor to talk about the united labor of God's servants in God's church. The, The church is presented throughout the New Testament as the body of Christ. Right? Christ is its head, and we are the members of Christ's body. I'm going to read, starting in verse 12. Notice the unity theme throughout this text. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Are you seeing the repeated one? For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. You want eyes and you want ears, right? Amen? Amen. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. That is a key phrase. Just as he desired. If you're an eye, you're an eye because God desired you to be such. Don't be jealous of the ears. Okay? 
Embrace your role as a servant eye, okay? That's your job. God crafted you for that job, and I'm getting into one of my points later. But that's the point. They are assigned in the body just as he desired. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no, no need of you. Let's all, hands and, let's all the right hands get over here and we'll start a right-handed church. It'll be wonderful. Everyone will be like us, it'll be great. And the left-handers say, well, let's go start a left-handed church, right? Uh, and it'll be wonderful, it'll be great, and then so on and so forth. No, 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 no. Uh, if you look around and you see, wow, I'm, I'm different than these people. Well, that's good, right? That means you have a place to serve, right? You have a, you have a, a, a function in our church that's not being met. And if you see it, it's your responsibility to meet it, all right? Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God, listen closely, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We all are one. Servants are one. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. We're one. We're one because we're all in the same category. We're all members. We are not the head. We dare not try to be Christ. We are not Him. We have a specific assignment that God has given us, and we need to labor for unity within the body because we are one. Servants work as a collective group. However, if you look at verse, the rest of verse 8, we see the second thing, that there is an individuality about our work. There's a collectiveness about our work, but there's also the reality that servants are rewarded individually. Verse 8b, But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, this is not like a group project where you get to sit passively by and, and get an A on the project. Right? We are all working together collectively and God will analyze, examine our work individually. And it's really striking, the emphasis. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We work together, but we are rewarded individually. And the word for reward here is significant. It's, it's really the word for wage. A laborer or a worker is worthy of his hire. Well, God is a faithful employer. And he rewards his servants accordingly. All of his payments are distributed with perfect equity. Every servant receives exactly as his labor commends him. And notice that. It's the labor of the servant. It's not his outcome. It's not the, the fruit of his labor. Right? Look at chapter, verse 8. 
He's rewarded according to his own labor, his own work, his own diligence, his own care, his own carefulness, his own sincerity. Right? All of that will be uh, the measure of your heavenly reward. We cannot control the outcomes. We can't do that. But we can control our effort. And that's what Paul is saying here. All right? We, we can't control the fruit, but we can control our effort and leave outcomes to God. Our job is to remember our role to work collectively and to remember that we will be rewarded individually. All right? That there is an individual responsibility that I have as a saint and a servant to work for the Master for whom I will be rewarded. Third, servants work for God. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This, this seems like it might be able to go unsaid. Of course we work for God. Well, uh, here's the point that Paul makes. We are God's fellow workers, meaning Apollos and Paul work together for God. We are His workers. We work for Him And you, church in Corinth, are his building, his field. That has serious ramifications for us, for how we do our work. It should have serious ramifications for how you come to Calvary Bible Church on Sunday morning to serve. We are not just coming here uh, to be fed or to see our friends or X, Y, or Z. We come here to take care of God's building. All right? We come here to take care of God's field. It's striking. The two metaphors here are a field uh, that's plowed, that's cultivated for production, kind of like a garden, we would say, or a building. It's like a temple. Now, there's a renewed sense of responsibility, I think, on all of us. If you have plants in your flower bed, or you have a garden coming on, you know, on this side of a, a major drought, uh, I heard recently that the numbers of loss, uh, landscaping, plants, and all of that was somewhat astronomical um, just because of the drought. Well, Paul is saying here, imagine your work as a servant as coming to work on God's garden. It's a delicate garden, right? And you say, well, I'm not a green thumb. Well, you have to learn to become one, <laughs> all right? Uh, this is God's garden. We all work together to care for it. It takes work and effort and energy, right? And thoughtfulness. We come to work on God's building, which is His temple that's being built up. The foundation is Christ. We build on that foundation. But when we come, we ought to be thoughtful. What can I do today to build Rodney up, right? What can I do today to help Damon be faithful? What can I do today to help this servant, be more faithful, more godly. How can I serve them? How can I help them? Right? That's the focus of our work. Why? It's because we work for God. All right? You don't work for yourself at home. You know, working, you clock in eight hours a day and you put in two hours a day. Right? It's not like that. I hope that none of you are doing that. We work for God. And he's the God whose eyes are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. 
He sees all. And we are always clocked in. All right, we are always working for him. Fourth, servants work according to God's assignment. So we're talking about the servant's work here. We work according to God's assignment. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Paul's assignment was to lay the foundation. That was his. He laid it, and Apollos, Apollos and others were building on that foundation. All right? they, they each had individual assignments. But the phrase that jumps out to us is, according to the grace of God given to me. According to the grace of God given to me. Now, Paul uses this phrase really throughout his letters to speak of his specific work. I'll just read one passage. Ephesians 3, verse 7. Paul says this, according to the grace given to me. The gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the work of His power, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. For what, Paul? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul had received from God a direct assignment as a servant. Right? He received that assignment that Peter did not receive. Right? Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles by a unique grace gift to him. It was his gift. And with the Corinthians, it was his gift to lay the foundation. And Apollos had another gift, a building up. And so did every member. The reminder for us here is that each servant is given a gift. By God, And I want you to just flip over to 1 Peter 4. This is a passage I look at um, definitely every time before I preach, but very frequently. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. We all labor within the realm of our own gifting. Right? You are different than I am. And that's good. Just like the eye is different than the ear. That's good and right. We don't want to just sit around and wish that we were different. I wish I had the gifting of the ear, but I only have the gifting of the eye. Do you see how silly that is? Right? It's the same thing if we sit around and are envious of one another's gifting. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Peter writes, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You, friend have received a special gift. I haven't received it. Or maybe I have. Maybe we have a similar gift. But likely I don't have it. You have it. And if you don't exercise it, we walk around as a body without ears or with no left feet. Right? We don't want that. So, your gift is not to just sit there and hide. You don't treasure it and hoard it. Peter says, you employ it. Employ your gift, not my gift. You can't employ it. You employ your gift in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have to do that. God will not employ your gift for you. 
You've got to go out. You've got to do it. You've got to exercise your will to do the work God has given you. I love Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works of service, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You have been uniquely called from darkness to life, right? And so have I. We share that together. We are both collectively, in that sense, one in Christ. But God, out of this collection, chooses some people to have some gifts, others to have other gifts. And the responsibility is not for us to be jealous or envious of the gifting of others, but to encourage the gifting of others and to use the gift God has given us for the building up of the church. That is the work of a servant. It's unique. It's uniquely assigned. It's a grace gift. So, servants work collectively. They're rewarded individually. They have specific assignments from God that you you have that. And then fifth, servants are called to work carefully. Carefully. Look at verse 10. The end of verse 10, he says, But each man must be careful how he builds on it. That's the warning. Be careful how you build. Be careful how you serve. That shouldn't shock you or frighten you from serving because you're going to go before the master and you're going to have to give an account. But it should remind us that we are, as servants, called to do a work that is exceedingly important. There are no small, insignificant projects that the Master has given. Every one of them is utterly significant. If you are called to do the least thing today, friend, remember who you work for. Remember who your Master is. Remember that you have His smile when you exercise your gift to serve the church. Don't forget that. And then serve carefully. I have more to say about that. Um, Let me just say a couple of things since I can do that. Um, (laughs) How do we serve carefully? How do we do it? Well, first... As I mentioned, we're mindful of what we're doing. We work for the master. Second, we labor within the realm of our own gifting. Right? Don't try to do the work that God's gifted other people to do. Encourage them to do that work and do the work that God's called you to do. How do you, how do you know you're in the realm of your gifting? I think it was Eric Liddell who said, when I run, I feel the Father smile. Right? When you are serving in your capacity, there's something about knowing You're doing the assignment. And it's wonderful. And you have the Father smile. It doesn't matter if it's the greatest work or the least work. You have His smile. There's nothing like it. Third, we labor carefully by laboring in God's strength. We don't set out and do things on our own. We understand John 15, apart from being attached to the vine... We can do nothing. So we work hard, but we know that our strength, our effort, our energy, all that we have to give 
is simply God's grace to us. Right, what do you have that you have not received? Right, and if you have received it, why do you boast as if you earned it? Right, we've only been given gifts and we give that gift to others. All right, let's move on. So Paul reminds the, the Corinthians and us of the servant's role, the servant's work. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly of all, he reminds us of the servant's exam. The servant's exam. Look at verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Those are very sobering words. Very sobering. Sobering to us, even though in Christ all our debt is paid, we are justified, forgiven sinners. Uh, there is no charge that could be brought against us that would stick in Christ. Your debt, past debt, present debt, and future debt, past sin, future sin, future sin, is all erased in Christ. And if that's not true of you, we would, we would urge you to come to Christ. Uh, come to Him. He offers you everything. And He calls you to eternal joy and life everlasting. And He's worth everything. And because it's only through Him that we have any hope of eternal life with the Father. But even still, knowing our justification, knowing that we have the Father smile when we do His work, it is sobering to consider that we will all stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. Paul speaks of this same event in 2 Corinthians 5.10 where he says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You've heard this called the Bema judgment. It's a Greek word, Bema or Bema, which literally means a step. It's a step. So it's a platform and it's Christ's Bema. It's Christ's platform where he will be and all of his precious, beloved servants, you and I together, will walk before him. And on an individual basis, he will examine our work. Paul frames it this way, verse 11. Each man, each servant, verse 12, comes along and builds on the foundation. And then, he gives a list, verse 12, of material which we all build with. Some build with gold, silver, precious stones. These are all materials that will endure a fire. They'll pass the exam. And then, others build with wood, hay, straw, all of which will be burnt up in a fire. 
Now, we, we go in and out of building with these materials, right? Um, you, you know of things that you've done, and you know the motive of your heart. And you, you leave that sometimes, and you think, that was wood, hay, straw. But ultimately, friend, only the Lord knows that. The point of verse 13 in this little section, actually, is that the quality of the work is what is most important. The quality. Look at verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality or the sort of each man's work. The fire, of course, refers to the fire used to test metallic ore. To, to test its genuineness, its purity. Was this authentic? And if, verse 14, a man's work endures the fire, the exam, he'll receive a reward, he'll pass the exam. Verse 15, if it, his work is burned up, he will suffer loss. No, notice, this is not punishment, right? We're talking about a, the examination of a believer's works, not his eternal state. The word has to do with being deprived of something you expected. You expected your work to endure. But as a surprise, you don't pass the exam in that particular work. Yet, he says, he will be saved as yet through fire. Right? This is not about your justification, it's about your sanctification. And, and the reality is, is that all of our effort as servants will be examined. And clearly, clearly, I mean, some men and women, and you know, I think we all know this, some men and women will be more rewarded in, in heaven than others will be. Or this passage means nothing. All right? There will be various rewards that we each will receive, but here's the difference between heaven and Corinth. Right? In heaven and even Calvary Bible Church. In heaven, we will rejoice that John got that reward. Because we won't be envious of him. We will praise God and say, that is right. I knew they were such a good servant. I knew they were doing those invisible things that no one saw. I knew it. And they are worthy to receive that reward, that payment. And we will celebrate together and then we'll cast those rewards before our Lord's worthy feet. Well, let me just make a couple of points of application and then we'll be done. I don't want to abuse, abuse this or abuse you. All right. What does this mean for us if we're going to be faithful servants? Well, servants must work with the great day in mind. Oh, friends, this shapes, fashions, compels everything you do. And it shaped everything Paul did. Look over at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul said this, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants. We're just servants, right? It's a different word for servant, but the same idea. Verse 2. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found faithful or trustworthy. But to me, he says, it is a very small thing the least important thing I can think about. That I may be examined by you. 
if I think of the most insignificant things I could think about, says Paul, it's that you would examine me and you would examine my work. Or even by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, he says. Why? Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. I know my own bias. I'm not even judging my heart here. I know that I do work and I know the wickedness of my heart and I know that I'm not an honest judge of my own efforts. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. Even if I can't think of my guilt, I know it's there somewhere. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Lord. And then notice verse 5. This is application. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Stop evaluating one another's efforts as servants. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Stop living for the praise of other servants. It's worthless. It's worthless. It will be burnt up. Live for the praise of God. All right? So how do we be faithful? How do we faithfully, faithfully labor for God at Calvary Bible Church? We remember our role. We are servants. We belong to Him. We are His instruments merely channels of His grace. Let's not exalt ourselves above others, but let's come underneath one another and serve. We work together for this. We have a unified goal and task. We've received our instructions from the Master. So we work, yet we're responsible on an individual basis for our labor. And we all know and we look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Himself, whom we love, when He looks and we are examined for the work that we have done, may, friends, may we all say on that day that we have worked heartily as unto the Lord in every respect. And may we each find that we've been building with the kind of materials, quality, sincere, Dedicated, careful, servant work. The kind of work that will turn into a reward on the day when we can throw those before our King. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Father, it's in His name that we would even dare to come before you. Lord, would you, would you be our God, would you continue to shepherd us, continue to lead us, continue to help us live faithfully before you? Oh, Father, would you help us when we have done all that was required of us as your servants, when we have labored so unceasingly, hiddenly, secretly, ways that no one even knows about. Lord, may we, when we've done all that, say that we are merely unworthy servants who have only done what was required of us. And Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of all we have to give. And Lord, would you preserve our church, continue to build us up, help us each to do the work you've given us to do with care, with diligence, and with humility. 
And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's sweet name. Amen.